Hunting is not easy. It never has been. It takes dedication, motivation, a lot of patience, and quality gear. If you manage a food plot, put up stands, or need just one more game camera, we can help at MidwayUSA.com. We opened our doors in 1977 and continue to put customers first by offering super fast, same day shipping. For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. When it comes to hunting boots, how many pairs does one man need? Well, how many seasons are there? Turkey season? Deer season? Duck season? Dove season? Honey, how many pairs of boots does one man need? At least one more pair. For just about everything for hunting, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Larry Potterfield with Midway USA. Thanks for your business. Hey, I just got back from lunch. Did you finish that report yet? Uh, well, not exactly. Um, still working on it. I'm not finished just yet. Uh, I got a little sidetracked, but I will get them to you first thing this afternoon. <laughs> it is first thing this afternoon. Well, yeah, I, I understand that, but I mean, I, I am working on it. But I'll, I'll have, uh, what do you mean that the report isn't finished yet? I'm, I'm still in the process of working on it. I've just been a little distracted. Just distracted? Our meeting starts in an hour. Can have it. You, you no no. What were you doing? Were you listening to another hunting podcast again? I swear, I give the staff in this office the freedom to do whatever they want to do as long as they meet a deadline. That is the first bullet underneath your job description. Pays attention to detail and deadline and deadline. Dude, are you even listening to me right now? Welcome to episode 107 of the White Tone Extraction Podcast. My name's Austin, and joining me in my basement, Chuck. How you doing, brother? Cheers. Dude. It's St. Patty's Day, Happy St. Patty's thanks, Day, man. Cheers. Thanks for giving me a drink, bud. You needed a drink. I was a little bit, like, concerned about you. I was a, a little parched, so. A little parched. This works out really well. Hilarious. Yeah. What's going on, man? Oh, dude, you know, coming up to a good weekend, I hope. I hope so, too. Should be a little bit of shed hunting. Mm-hmm. Maybe some permission stuff going yeah. on. That should be pretty cool. We're coming up. I saw your post yesterday, 45 days until season, so I guess 44 now. Yeah. Super exciting. It's coming quick, huh? And and, and the bonus to that is our trip to West Ooh, Virginia. Is West even Virginia. Less. That's like 13 days less. We're almost in. Oh, yeah. We're almost inside a month. What is that, April 18th? Yeah, a month. A month when tomorrow. This post, when this post, we wow. will be one month out. That's exciting. Hell I'm pretty yeah, excited. Dude. That should be a cool little trip, too. Yeah. I was talking to Tanner yesterday. Mm-hmm. Me, you, Lane, and Tanner. Yeah, they said cool that trip. they were going to go somewhere, and why not just join up? Absolutely, why not? That'd be um, cool. That'd be a sweet little trip. I'm excited it'll be about fun. it. <clears throat> it'll be fun. If it's anything like last year, it'll be insane. If it's anything like the last three years down there, it'll yeah. be insane. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, honestly. <laughs> Other than one year, that was the only bad year that we had there, and that's because I only hunted twice, I think, and. I don't know. I don't think we ever killed anything, but yeah, that was the only year that I was like, mm, there's still a ton of birds here. It's not bad. Yeah, there was a ton of birds there last year. Dude, it was. If anybody's sad. wondering where we're talking about, if you go like to New York City and you yep. go directly south towards like the North Pole, nowhere near there. It's right about there. <laughs> <laughs> you know that old, our old joke? Yeah. Our old, uh, panhandle joke yeah it's on the panhandle of like texas 
<laughs> it doesn't work very well. It does not work very well. I don't know how that works. We'll have to come up with a new one for it. It'll be yeah. funny, though. That one kind of just went by the wayside, though. That was a good running joke. That was for a good a running joke for time. a while, man. Yeah. I think we overdid it for a while, but it was funny to me. Nah, and maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I am really excited about turkey season. Dude, you also brought me mm-hmm. this sweet turkey toe that you I made. I did. I'm stoked about this thing. It's going right in my vest. It's a new addiction hobby for me. I'm going to throw my old one out because it is just, <laughs> it's in shambles and this yeah. one's beautiful. I'm well, stoked. Dude. Hopefully Thank it you. works out for you. And if <clears> not, I can always, uh, I can always whip you up another one that works. But that one's, I mean, that was the first one I ever made. Pretty sweet. And it turned out really better than I expected. There's some things that I've learned since then to make it a little tighter. Yeah. But I think it'll just be a little extra cushion for you, if anything, on your shoulder, just being a little looser. I like so, it. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a new uh, addiction hobby. I was up till about three in the morning last night finishing one just because why not? <laughs> that is life. I know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just like I start getting into it and I start, you know, getting the first weave down and then all of a sudden I'm done with that. And I'm like, well, the second weave's a lot quicker than the first weave. So I'll start doing that. And then <laughs> I burn myself three times and I got blisters on my fingers. And <laughs> oh my goodness. Gracious. I'm going to need to get a, a more legit setup than on my couch watching Yellowstone while I just do the weave. Cause that's what that was my life last night. That's cool, man. I Not like bad, that. Right. Yeah. It, pretty solid. Could be a lot worse. <laughs> it definitely could. <laughs> Holy smokes, man. Yeah. But speaking of turkeys and speaking of. All of this good stuff that we want to do this weekend. Yes. You know, there's some people that make that possible for us. There are some people that make that possible. First and foremost, Scree Gear. That's right, man. Scree Gear gets us out there, gets us well-equipped to just put up with all the shit we're going to run into out there. You don't know what kind of weather we're going to run into in April, too. There's been many times where it's been 70 degrees. Or, you know, there could be snow on the ground. It could be 20 <laughs> degrees. We don't, we don't know. Yeah. We're supposed to get a little rain this weekend. That, yeah. That hard scrabble is going to be perfect for that. Just so good. Throw it in your pack or whatever. If you're going out for sheds and just throw that thing on, if it starts raining, you're golden. Golden, dude. Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. stoked about that. Guys, go check it out. They got some awesome turkey bundles going on right now. If you get a turkey bundle, you get a free pod call. It has yeah. the logo on it. Super cool. Use the code WDP20. Get yourself 20% off your first purchase. There you go. Next, we have VIP Archery. Yeah, I'm really stoked about that too because I am in the middle of building a turkey setup right now for Are you? Yeah, yeah. I've talked about it a couple times. One of my goals this year is to shoot one with a gobbler guillotine. I want to chop a head off. I got some arrows ordered, doing some new fletchings. I'm doing some pretty sweet stuff. I'm building a whole setup for it, so I'm stoked. Yeah, so we're going to try to get Matt on here real soon. Yeah. And have him talk about all that great stuff. I want to pick his do, brain a little bit. They got a lot going on. They got the guillotines. They got three brand new broadheads. Yeah. They basically did a, re, a whole new line in just a year. It, it's It blows your mind what that man can achieve with all he's gone through. Absolutely, man. So, he's, a, he's a tank. I love that guy. Love having him on board. I and, do too. You know, you really can't kill turkey without a good call, though. That is true. I have some on order for those, too. Yes, you do. A&F Custom Calls. Our boy yes, Kyle Allen. Holy smokes. What a good dude. Yeah, his episode just dropped with Claycomb Outdoors that he shot a real nice bird up in the mountains. Sweet. Up, up his camp and real nice bird. He, they chased him all day long. I think he got it done at like 1130. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's right at the wire almost. <laughs> right. And I'm I'm not sure if that was like an all-day hunt time frame because that's usually when he goes up there. But, man, those calls just, they get it done, man. They do. They're results, man. <laughs> No doubt about it. No doubt about it, man. That is awesome. I'm stoked about that. 
Yeah. Well, outside of those three, we do also want to give a huge shout out to Out on the Land Manufacturing. Yep. And New Canoe. And New Canoe. That's it. For always supporting us and, you know, being a part of the squad. Super cool. Super cool. Well, speaking of squad, we got a really awesome guest on for this one. I was stoked about it. You were stoked about it. It turned out phenomenal. I love this guy. I learned so much during this podcast. This is one of those ones where there's going to be some serious nuggets in there that you might want to scribble down on a piece of paper. Yeah, I'm going to listen back to it, even though I recorded the episode with him, because there was some knowledge dropped on this one. Yes, yes. You guys are going to want to hold on to it. It's good. (laughs) Get yourself a drink and a notepad. Yeah. Kip Adams is the man, and that's who we got on. All right. Let's do it. All right, we are back with another episode. We are bringing to you a very special guest, someone that on the other line here, I've been wanting to have on this podcast now for, oh, I don't even know, two and a half, three years easy. Quite some time, yeah. <laughs> we have Kip Adams, a Pennsylvania guy once again. Kip, what's going on, man? Oh, it's great to be here, guys. And uh, yeah, uh us Pennsylvania guys are going to take over the world. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a proud Pennsylvania native for sure. I sure hope we do. Yeah. We, we have enough people to do it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we Kip. have enough hunters for sure to uh, to take over the world from that end. So uh, we're, we're in, uh, we'd be in good shape if we had to form our own army. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Oh, a well-trained man. militia for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kip, we have you on. This is extremely exciting. I know I touched on a little bit in the intro, but in all honesty, I've been following you for a long time. I really love the work you do all the way back when you were with QDMA and now you're with the National Deer Association, which more or less is the same thing. I understand there was a merger there, but you have worked your way up to a chief conservation officer role with the National Deer Association. I want you to get into a little bit about your background and introduction of who you are past that. And you know what, since you're a Pennsylvania native, why don't we talk about after that when you got into hunting and, and we'll go a little bit into the traditional part of PA hunters. All right. That sounds good. Uh, I, I knew early on that, that I really wanted to work with wildlife. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, so I've always been very close uh, to, to animals and, and nature and uh, learned, you know what, there's, there's this profession out there called a wildlife biologist. And I, when I was in high school, I said, Ooh, that, that has my name written all over it. So, uh, I, I went to school to be, you know, to study wildlife. Um, at that point, really, the only jobs were for state or federal wildlife agencies. That, that was really all there was if you wanted to be a biologist. And uh, so uh, I went to Penn State, got my undergraduate degree. Uh, the, the field was so competitive that you really didn't even stand a chance of getting a job if you didn't have a graduate degree. So uh, left Penn State, uh, went to the University of New Hampshire and got a master's degree and, uh, and it was a great opportunity, guys, because you know how big Penn State is. You now a huge school. There was 40,000 students there. Then went to New, New Hampshire where there was, I don't remember the exact number, but very, very small school. So it was, it was a nice compliment to a big school for my undergrad and uh, left there, went to the state of Florida and actually worked as a wildlife biologist for Florida Game and Fish Commission. And uh, man, I'm a Northern guy. Washington, D.C. is the furthest South I had ever been. And that was on a sixth grade <laughs> class trip. You know, I, I, I thought, you know, I like the cold. I love the ice fish. I like the snow. What am I doing? But it turned out to be the best thing that could have possibly happened for an aspiring deer biologist to get to a different part of the country. Deer eat a lot of the same things, but what really makes or breaks somebody as a deer biologist is understanding the deer hunters 
in the, in the deer hunting culture. And in Florida, it was very different than it was in Pennsylvania. So that did me a, a world of good to go there and see a different part of the world and manage deer and deer hunters, you know, that that was very different than what we had in Pennsylvania. So uh, I was there for four years. Then I went back to New Hampshire and uh, and took over for uh, New Hampshire Fishing Game as their deer and bear project leader. So uh, I, I ran that deer program for a couple of years and, and just loved it. I was back in the north. You know, I was running a statewide program. And, and New Hampshire has one of the best deer management programs, you know, in the country relative to, you know, numbers of deer and age structure. And so it was a great experience. And it actually was then while I was there that I, I learned about QDMA. QDMA had sent a, an educational flyer to every state's deer biologist and uh, just to show some of the stuff that they had available with posters and books. And so I started reading about this organization thinking, like, what is this? And I realized, man, this is really cool. They're engaging hunters. They're teaching people. So I joined immediately. Not through New Hampshire Fishing Game, but just personal. Like, man, I want to belong to this. So I joined. Uh, I would get Quality Whitetails Magazine. I would get all this stuff. And then uh, fast forward a, a couple of years, I was really, you know what? I want to do something a little more than I can here at a state agency. And at that point, QDMA advertised the first position in the Northeast. Northeast Regional Director, based out of Pennsylvania, cover the whole Northeast. And I thought, that has my name written all over it. So I applied for it. I got that job. And, and man, that was 20 years ago this year. It's hard to believe wow, it's been that long. That's incredible, but, man. <laughs> it's been a great ride, I promise you. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yikes. We were just little tykes 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a ride and what a full circle to bring you back right to your great state of Pennsylvania. And we definitely appreciate you here in our state. That's for dang sure. Absolutely. Man, what what you do for not only us, but the entire country is pretty incredible. So I want to hear, though, how you got into hunting uh, because, you again, you're a PA boy. So were you raised up into it or did that something that came later in life? Now, I was raised into it. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in very rural Tioga County, Pennsylvania. And uh, everybody I knew hunted. My dad hunted, my grandparents hunted, my uncles hunted. Uh, all of my friends hunted. It just seemed the most natural thing in the world. I just, I just thought everybody hunted. You know, they closed school opening day of buck season. Um, so it wasn't even a choice that I made to go or not. It, it was just a part of my family and a part of, you know, who I was. And uh, it wasn't until I was older and actually left Pennsylvania that I realized just how lucky I was to grow up that way. Because, uh, you know, I leave New or Pennsylvania, I go to New Hampshire and I realized in, in New Hampshire, there, there's high population of hunters there as well, but, but nothing like Pennsylvania. And, uh, and, you know, so that's when I first started realizing, wow, you're like, not everybody grew up the way that I did. And, and so I was just so naive because, you know, I thought everybody got to walk out their back door and go hunting and, it, you know, you could hunt just about anywhere and everybody let you on. So uh, I know now how fortunate I was to be able to do that. But yeah, I, I grew up, my dad, you know, had a, had a hunting camp right in our town. So, you know, historical situation where all of his buddies went there and it was just like the coolest thing in the world. You know, his jerseys and came as a little kid, man, I just couldn't wait to be old <laughs> enough, you know, to go to hunting camp. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I came by it very naturally. And, uh, I couldn't even, I couldn't even imagine people today, you know, that grow up that, that don't have that opportunity. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so giving of, of my time and from NDA, I'm such a big proponent of mentoring people just because 
I, I know what hunting has given me, and uh, and I know that not everybody has that chance. So uh, I'm I'm very happy that we can provide that opportunity for others today. Just because, uh, man, I, I was one of the luckiest kids in the world, and uh, a lot of people in Pennsylvania grew up that way. You know, I know they don't get that opportunity now, but it, it was pretty special for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you you really did. You kind of fit like the envelope of you know, the perfect PA tradition story. Honestly, your dad had a hunting camp, you know, you grew up, it was the thing to do. I mean, I don't know whether they still shut down school opening day of buck season. They did when we were in school, but I believe they still do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. We kind of have this culture up here and I guess there's some other states that do too. Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, New York, I guess too, kind of that have this strong deer hunting tradition. Like you get down South and it's the same way with like turkeys. You know, they have their whole turkey hunting tradition. Yeah, deer hunting's big too, but squirrel hunting too. Squirrel hunting, another mm-hmm. one of them, but Pennsylvania, that rich deer like, hunting, yeah. rifle season sort of thing is the, just the good old boys, right? Yeah, you all absolutely. get together and you, you go up with your family and all of your dad's friends. And man, it's just, it's, it's refreshing and wonderful to hear that, you know, even in our generation, that that was still a thing, thankfully for us, yeah. when we were growing up, because I couldn't imagine life any other way without it, really. Let's take a step into, you know, your role now with the NDA. So, a chief conservation officer, someone might hear that and say, what exactly does a chief conservation officer do with an association like the National Deer Association? Could you clear that up for us? Sure. So, so I'm, I'm a certified wildlife biologist, and uh, I am very fortunate to oversee our, our conservation program at the National Deer Association. So I get my hands in a little bit of a lot of stuff. You know, any any research that we're involved with, I get to partake in that, whether it's you know, like a technical review of research projects or, or you know, to help design research projects for, for deer or habitat. I oversee our educational programs. So maybe it's something new we're developing, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a video series or, you know, or, or writing something or a blog or anything that we do from an educational component. I, I have my hands in that. I get to, to work with some of our advocacy efforts. And, you know, we are far stronger today from an advocacy standpoint than ever before in our history. You know, we, we work with legislators more. You know, we have our members that are engaging the state wildlife agencies and engaging bill makers. So, um, you know, I don't get real involved with that, but but I do get to help with that, partly just to either make sure, you know, that write our position statements on things or to help with some of those letters. You know, hey, here's where we stand on this. We support this because or no, 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 we oppose this because, you know, this is not good for hunting. Our certification program, all of our deer steward classes, I get to teach at all of those. I get to help design those. I'm involved with our mentoring efforts, whether it's youth mentoring or adult mentoring. So uh I by far, in my opinion, have the best job at NDA, and uh, and I wouldn't trade it for for anything in the world. Yeah, it sounds like you are quite the busy guy. <laughs> it's a hefty resume, <laughs> yeah. but at the same time, man, it sounds so enjoyable. Oh, like it sounds that, like you love it, right? Absolutely, like there's passion there. It's something that you more or less maybe just didn't expect to be here when you first started off as a biologist, but I'm sure you're pretty happy to be where you're at today. Oh, I am. I, you know, I'm, and I have been very appreciative all along the way at the different jobs I've had or different state agencies I've worked with. But, uh, you know, what I have an opportunity to impact today, for example, through our Deer Steward program, all, we've been doing this since 2007. And, and every single student that comes through that, we have a, a survey at the end that they get to take, you know, so we can continue to make that program better. 
And we ask them all, like, how, how many acres of land do you either own or manage? We do these classes for state and wildlife agencies. We do it for, for private landowners, any hunters. And uh, we have a lot of people that, you know, that don't own any land that come to those. They just want to learn more. But some people do own land. They manage land. And from the inception to right now, we have impacted 15 million acres of land with what we have taught people on how to enhance habitat and make it better for deer and other wildlife. So, so that is really rewarding. Of course, I'm a small part of that. We have numerous instructors, but uh, you know, to just be a piece of that and just to know how much better we have made it for for white-tailed deer and you know numerous other wildlife species across the whitetails range, that is really rewarding. So uh, I, I enjoy teaching a lot, and, uh, and it, it's pretty cool to think that I've had a part in that. Definitely, definitely, that is absolutely insane. I can't even fathom that much property. That no, <laughs> yeah, honestly, <laughs> no, I don't know if I driven that much property in the last <laughs> two months. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to dive into one thing, though, that you touched. One of the main subjects we really want to cover today is habitat improvement. So this is a perfect segue into that. It's March right now. It's early March. We're almost mid-March. What should you be doing this time of the year, and what can you be doing this time of the year to improve your habitat on your own property? Well, if you're in the northern United States, th this is the time of the year that, that you can frost seed food plots, early successional vegetation, any place that you want to, you know, to, to provide clover or some other species in. So, and, and what you were doing is taking advantage of that freeze and thawing because, you know, it gets below freezing at night, it's warming up during the day. That freeze thaw actually can give you good seed to soil contact for anything that you would frost seed. And frosting is literally just walking, you know, across the ground and just spreading seed onto frozen ground. So, it, you know, this is the perfect time of the year for that. This is the perfect time of the year from an early successional vegetation standpoint to be preparing to do any work you want in these old fields. I'm a huge proponent of managing early successional vegetation. And if you disturb the soil during the dormant season, which means, you know, before green up, you encourage forbs. Forbs are high quality foods for deer. You know, food and cover, great. If you disturb the soil during the growing season, you encourage grasses. And for the most part, grasses are not good for deer. So in any of those early successional vegetation areas here over the course of about the next month, if you want to encourage more forbs, if you have the ability to disc any of those areas, now is the time to do it. You can be preparing to uh, use prescribed fire this time of the year to, you know, clean thatch off early successional vegetation areas, to burn in forested stands, to clear off, you know, food plots that you want to replant. So lots of prescribed fire options, you know, across the northern U.S. right now, as well as in the south as they're getting into the growing season. So, you know, whether you're in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, or anywhere in between, there is a lot of things going on right now that you're either getting ready to do or it's just timing is perfect to start doing, to start enhancing habitat for, for deer and numerous other wildlife species. Excellent, man. Excellent. <laughs> so I hear you, I heard you say it a few times and in, in your latest videos, you mentioned as well, like that early succession growing. So what exactly are you looking to benefit as far as what wildlife benefits the most from this early successional growth? And there is a pile of wildlife species that are, that are good at that. And, and if folks don't understand exactly what that is, Early successional vegetation is either forbs, which are broadleaf plants, 
or can be some grasses, but it's basically herbaceous materials. So, you know, it's, it's not stuff that's woody. We're not talking about trees and, and bushes and that stuff, but it's stuff that will grow in, in open areas. So think of, you know, a food plot. We, we plant something. All of that is herbaceous. Well, we can take those same open areas and we don't have to plant anything because there's a tons and tons of seeds that are already in, in the soil. They're right there. All they need is the sunlight and, you know, an opportunity to grow. So that early succession of vegetation from a deer end, we want to promote forbs. So those are areas where all of that stuff can grow. And then from that, it provides tremendous deer food as well as cover. And, and the thing that is really good about it is, you know, we don't have to buy the seed to plant it. We don't have to spend the time or resources to plant it. We're not liming it. We're not fertilizing it. You know, we're just taking advantage of what Mother Nature has provided. So it's we can impact many more acres with fewer dollars, which is great. But the one thing that is so valuable about it is that those species are some of the first things that green up in the spring. And think about it. When did bucks start growing antlers? They started, you know, in what, March or April. Yeah. So they need high quality food. When are falls hitting the ground? You know, in Pennsylvania, most of those are in May. But so many people that manage properties and, and even plant food plots, you know, your food plots in most cases aren't providing anything for deer until, you know, May, June, et cetera. You know, a lot of that stuff you're just planting in April and May. So the early successional vegetation is so good for food and cover. But more importantly, it provides it during April and May when deer need it the most. So it's it's the perfect thing, you know, to, to mix with your food plots and the work that you do in the woods. So, you know, you're not starting those deer off, starving them during that critical time of the year. You know, what most people don't realize is your habitat should be absolutely rock in April and May. And for the most part, it's not, you know, on properties. It's, you're just hitting green up. Nothing that you plant is growing yet. So that's why those early successional vegetation fields are so, so important uh, to, to good deer management. It's really interesting. I feel like that's something that you really don't hear many people talk about. You know, everybody talks about doing food plots and stuff for the deer in the fall. And you don't really hear too much about people trying to get that forage and everything right when they deer need it the most. Yeah. Most people are saying, oh, we're putting out mineral and, you know, run a mineral, run a mineral. That is something that that's really interesting to me. I think yeah. that that's very helpful. Yeah, you hear frost seeding a lot too, but yeah, you, but you never hear about something as simple as what you're mentioning. Just disking up the ground. That, and, that's it. Just turning over that soil, yeah. letting those seeds that are lying dormant over the winter to come up first and to benefit for basically nothing more than your labor hours. Yeah. yeah what most people don't realize, and, and this is some research out of Penn State that showed, you know, they looked at the number of seeds in the top one inch of soil over the course of an acre. And, you know, nobody goes out and just digs the soil and tries to find and, and those seeds are so tiny, you know, in many cases, you can't see them all anyway. But they did this in numerous places in Pennsylvania, one top one inch of soil over the course of an acre. And what they found was there was like an average of about 12 million seeds per acre. Yeah. I mean, think about it, 12 million <laughs> seeds. So that stuff is, you know, all it needs is exposure to sun and the opportunity to grow. So, you know, there are, and I'm a huge food plot fan. I love to plant food plots, but, you know, in many cases, we plant a lot more than we actually need to because we can take, do a better job taking advantage of what Mother Nature is providing for us. And then in addition to that food that she provides, it provides such good cover. And then, of course, the timing is, is what is so critical. So, yeah, that people could benefit tremendously by 
taking advantage more of this early successional vegetation. And that's really where a lot of the habitat management push over the last few years is going. And, uh, and I think you're going to see that grow even more in that component over the next five to 10 years, just because, you know, you can get so much for so little monetary resources and it impact huge acres at the same time. Wow. It's wild. So what would, what would be a good helpful tip? Say I don't have the machinery to go in there and disc it, but maybe I have a, a side-by-side or, or a quad or something along those lines. What can I use to just simply get that, that soil turned over without having to go through some major equipment? What are the guys like me and Austin sitting here able to do on a, our small two-acre plot, let's say? Well, uh, if you have the ability to disc it during the dormant season, that is great. However, a lot of people don't have that equipment. You can't do that. And I, and I have worked on a lot of early successional vegetation fields you know, where I have not disced it either. So another thing that you can do is you can go in and spray an herbicide on that to kill the grasses. Essentially, you know, the cool season perennial grasses, things like canary grass and timothy and orchard grass and fescue, you know, that make this mat on the ground. They're, they're no value to deer or almost no value to deer, you know, and they inhibit anything else from growing. You know, if we remove those, then we have now exposed the seed bank to the sun and now other stuff can grow. So you can get a lot of the same benefits, you know, without having any equipment, literally by spraying an herbicide to kill those, uh, those perennial grasses, you know, and, and then just let the seed bank go wild. And I have been very successful in numerous areas doing exactly that. I, I do not have a heavy drill. I will say this, you know, I have a very small drill that we use to put in fire breaks and stuff, but, uh, uh, but I don't have a big drill either. So I have re- rented uh, or, or paid a, a local farmer with a big drill to drill some, or I'm sorry, to disc some stuff for me. But uh, for the most part, yeah, you know, that's a big piece of equipment. It's very expensive. Not a lot of people have one. I do not have one. But, uh, you know, I have converted a lot of a lot of uh, acres to early successional vegetation simply by being able to spray. And you can do that with a sprayer, you know, that's on the back of a four wheeler or on the back of your back. You know, I have sprayed a lot with backpack sprayers. So uh, you can change the world from a deer perspective, you know, even with a with a two gallon or a four gallon backpack sprayer. So just to be clear, though, are you you're spraying a post emergent then? That would be, yep. And, and the absolute best one to spray on these early successional vegetation fields is, is an herbicide called Plateau. And that's something that you would spray in the spring. It kills many of the unwanted grasses. It kills some of the nasty broadleaf plants as well, like horse nettle, but leaves the stuff that you want. So if that's not controlled, anybody can buy that. So that's a very simple one to get and be able to spray in the spring. But an even easier one that you can use is uh, in the fall, spray glyphosate. That's you know the least expensive. Essentially what you're doing is, because think about this, in the fall, after a couple of frosts, all those valuable broadleaf plants tend to go dormant. While the cool season perennial grasses, they will still continue to grow after a couple of frosts. So if you wait for a couple of frosts, the good stuff is dormant, bad stuff is still growing. You can spray that with glyphosate, which is so inexpensive and so easy, kill all those grasses all the good stuff has already gone dormant for the year so then the next spring start out with something that's way better than you had the year before so if we were doing this podcast in the fall i'd say wait for two frosts hit it with glyphosate well since we're in the spring i'll say you know what 
right out of the gate. Once that stuff greens up, hit it with plateau, and man, you are you got a big jump start. Uh, you know, to having a good area, good productive area for deer. That plateau is something we're going to have to really look into. We're both pretty familiar with the glycophate. We've used that on several occasions. So, yeah, awesome, awesome tip. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> almost wishing we had this conversation <laughs> beforehand <laughs> right. because I know you know we tried to start kind of a late plot last year. And one of the things we ran into was a lot of the grasses and we, you know, we cut it down and then we'd have to go back in and we were trying to plant some clover and a little bit of some broadleaf stuff. And, you know, the grasses just kept kind of coming up. So I wish I would have known that before I would have went in and sprayed it all down. But I think we got a little bit of a better control of it now. So now it seems like it's the time I need to go in with that plateau and, and really clean that plot up. Excellent. Excellent information. So, Kip, what's going on right now as far as are there any main uh, conservation efforts going on either in the state of Pennsylvania or with the National Deer Association that that's something you're proud of that you'd, you'd like to share with everyone? Yeah, we, we can involve a lot of, of legislative efforts and advocacy efforts, you know, on all across the Whitetails range. Two of the biggest things right now that are impacting deer, though, that we're involved with from a national level are uh, the CWD Act. And uh, what this essentially would do is was, would provide federal funding to the state wildlife agencies to allow them to monitor CWD, you know, and, and to uh, survey for it. Because most states have to take funds from, you know, their general wildlife operations to do all the CWD surveillance. So it's stuff that gets taken away from habitat work, hunter access, you know, land purchases, all that. So the CWD Management Act would be a huge win for deer hunters and state wildlife agencies. So we, we helped write some of that language, and we are you know big advocates, big supporters of that. The other big national thing that we are or helping push is, is the National Grasslands Act, which is providing a lot or would protect a lot of acres across the United States in this early successional vegetation, as we just said. It's called grasslands, but it's not just grasses. It's grasses and forbs. It's basically stuff in this early successional vegetation that would protect, which would be a huge win for, for deer, numerous other wildlife species, and hunters. So uh, those are two pieces of legislation right now that we are working hard on you know, to help support and, and help get passed. I'd like to retouch on those maybe a little more detail later on, but for right now, how can somebody like us help the effort? How can we help push the push the subject or push it through you know what what can we do to help push the envelope i guess is what i'm saying you can you can contact your local legislators and just let them know that you support both of those and that you would like them to support them as well um these are bipartisan efforts so you know it's not a ooh and us against them by any means so uh you know in the more the legislators hear from their constituents that they support it then uh you know then that just garners that much more federal support so uh Yep. And it's, you can go literally to the National Deer Association's uh, Advocacy Center. We have the information there. You literally can put in your zip code. All of your legislators' information comes up. We have little things you can just fill in the blocks and actually be able to send, you know, like what your comments to your legislators are. So uh, we make it super easy for our folks to contact them and just let them know, like, what they support or what they oppose. And uh, so, yeah, that's a great way to be able to do it. Excellent. Good to know. Yeah, great information. I'm glad the website helps out too because it, it can be it's not too terribly difficult, but trying to get a hold of these guys sometimes in in legislation is it's it's kind of tough. It's a little bit It can be daunting. It it can be. I mean, I know I just had to do it 
uh, go through this whole thing a little bit for work and some of the things that we were trying to push for work. And, you know, it was a, it was a little bit of an effort, but I like the fact that your website does it. It's all right there. You can go in. You guys are doing the legwork where it makes it a lot easier for us, which if you're listening to this and this is something you really believe in and, and you should, it sounds like, you know, go do it. It's super simple. You guys have made it extremely easy. So uh, we definitely appreciate your efforts on that end as well. Good deal. And, you know, Torin Miller is our director of policy. He handles all of that for us. I work with Torin very closely, you know, to help uh, determine our positions on some of that stuff. But, but Torin is great with, with our members and others, you know, to help them, you know, along those lines. And, and he's the one that put that advocacy center together. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It can be difficult to figure out in some cases, even who your legislators are or, you know, or the best things uh, to get to them. So, yeah, this makes it super simple. And, and whether you know you agree with what our position is or not, we you, know, you may choose to be on the other side of it. And if that's the case, well, we still make it easy for you to uh, <laughs> to let the legislators know. So oh, we want people to be engaged. Sure. Know, we want them to share their views and be part of the process. So uh, we try to make that as simple as possible. Excellent. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You want to cover the next topic? It's all you, brother. I'm letting <laughs> you run this one. I'm sitting back and enjoying. All right, here we go. This one's fun, Kip. Okay, so. I, I got to ask you, because you're the guy here, we find ourselves, lack of a better word, complaining sometimes about how many different seasons come in in the middle of our archery season. You know, you have muzzleloader bear, you have small game seasons, you have a, a youth rifle season. You got a lot of things going on. One in particular that I'm not the largest fan of is the muzzleloader bear. Okay, so I want to know, though, with the laps in seasons where all these different seasons are kind of overlapping, what effect is that overall? I mean, we kind of are seeing what it's doing to the bear population, but I want to know what is it doing to the deer harvest? Are you seeing a difference in deer harvest numbers since they've implemented this bear season in the middle of the season where it's kind of applying more pressure, not only to the bear, but we see it all obviously take the same effect on deer as well. In, in our area, especially when we go up north and where the bear populations are a little heavier. Yeah. You know, in any of those, we, you know, we step back and take a look at what the state wildlife agency is trying to do. You know, so at the end of the day, they're trying to harvest a certain number of deer, harvest a certain number of bear. So then, you know, sometimes adding, you know, longer lengths to, to the fire archery season or, or whatever. So with this, you know, the, I can say, the number or the, the percentage of, of Pennsylvania's total deer harvest that's taken during the archery season continues to increase. And, uh, you know, our gun hunters by far still take the most. Oh, yeah. But we do see an increasing number taken by archers, partly because we just have a lot more opportunity today than in the past. You know, our archery season is a little bit longer. We can use, you know, crossbows in it, you know, there's and all of that. So we do see that number climbing. And what we do know also is that it's not necessarily a different group of hunters. It's basically the same hunters who are just choosing to then shoot their the deer that they kill earlier in the year. So uh, it's not really adding hunters to it, or at least not adding a lot. And it's not adding to the deer kill. It just changes when some of those, those deer are killed. So that part is working very well. From the bear side, you know, there was a growing bear population. And, and Pennsylvania has one of the most restrictive bear seasons in the whole country. We're very lucky that anybody can buy a tag, you know, so you can go. I have friends in so many other states that only get to bear hunt, you know, once every 
five years or once every seven years because that's all they can draw a tag. So we're very lucky, you know, that anybody can get a tag, you know, and go bear hunting any year. But what they saw was, you know, ooh, we need to slow this bear population down in some areas. So they started looking at ways to provide some additional opportunities for that. Hence, the, you know, the muzzleloader bear and, you know, it started with the archery bear. Mm-hmm. So from my perspective, as somebody who hunts bear, you know, I love the opportunity to also shoot a bear during the most season now yeah. or, you know, or with as a loader you know but i live in an area i'm in unit 3a so you know we have a lot of bears and you know there was there's years you know where we see, would see a lot of bears during our archery season you know but then not as many once we get into the firearms season. absolutely so i personally i like the opportunity i'm confident in the game commission's ability to manage the total bear harvest numbers and you know and not be over harvested from some areas i have some friends and, and i'm a diehard bow hunter I have some of my diehard bow hunt buddies that, you know, that just hate that, you know, people are out there then, you know, during their season, you know, getting to use a muzzleloader or whatever. And uh, I try to remind them, hey, you know what? Not everybody is a diehard bow hunter like me or you, you know, and I'm just thankful that they're at least out, you know, enjoying nature. They're buying a hunting license. They're contributing, you know, to wildlife management. So uh, I'm glad to share the woods with some of those folks and, uh, I do like it that my kids or I can take a muzzleloader and shoot a bear a little earlier in the year as well. So uh, I do enjoy that opportunity. I can appreciate that. And I do enjoy the the other perspective. I mean, we kind of have a little bit of a bias towards it, like Charles said. <laughs> and you, if it's you ever listen to the selfish. podcast, yeah, it's a little selfish, <laughs> but you might hear us complaining about it once in a while. But I do see that side also. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your opinion on Heck it. Heck yeah, man. What I really enjoyed is when they came out with the archery bear season and then they extended the archery bear season. You know, from my perspective, I was a bigger fan of we can chase different games, but we're all using the same equipment. Yeah. What what kind of put a bad taste in my mouth when the muzzleloader season came in is, especially up north, you'd see these guys that would come in from the city, they'd drive up, they'd spend the whole weekend, and they would just do bear drives the whole time. And they, you know, they'd have a muzzleloader in their hand and a crossbow on their back. So if they saw a deer, they would shoot it with the crossbow. And then if they saw mm-hmm. a bear, they'd shoot it with the muzzleloader. And at first, it wasn't that big of a deal until my hunting got harder and then <laughs> you know I gotcha. it, that's when it was tough but you know that's that's kind of why I bring it up because you know on all honesty I am curious to see you know does it make an effect because I know it took an effect on us somewhere when we harvest our deer up there anyhow in certain units where we're just seeing more pressure and the deer start acting a little different they they stop having as much daylight activity during that time of the year. So I was just curious if there was any effect, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like we're still harvesting plenty of deer with bow and we're still doing our part to try to maintain the population. Yeah. And you bring up a good point just relative to, you know, the impact that those other other hunters have on what your, you know, your abilities are. You know, that's one thing in Pennsylvania that, that we're, we have more deer hunters per square mile than every state in the country. So, uh, you know, we have, the ways that we can do things are a little different, you know, than some other states, um, simply because of our hunter numbers. In the Western U.S. averages about 100 per square mile. The Southeast averages about four deer hunters per square mile. The Midwest is six. The Northeast is nine deer hunters per square mile. And then in Pennsylvania, it leads the country. We have a, we have 15 deer hunters per square mile. I mean, that is a lot. 
So we definitely (laughs) exert, you know, a lot more pressure, you know, on deer than, than, than almost every other state. So, you know, because of that, we have some of the conflicts exactly like you were saying there. So that, that's one of the, the tight ropes, you know, that the game commission walks trying to make sure that we can you know, harvest the right numbers of deer and bear and at the same time, keep enough hunters afield, you know, and satisfy hunters. So uh, it, it's not an easy job for sure. Yeah. It's a thankless job. Honestly, there's yeah. a lot of people that, you know, they give the game commission for lack of a better word, a lot of shit for what they do. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's kind of like you say, they're doing their best. They're, they're listening to the biologists and they're, yeah. they're trying to make their, they're giving it their best effort to keep everybody happy and keep the deer numbers and population in control. And it's a, a thankless job. Yeah. A lot of the complaints are, are unwarranted for yeah, sure. Yeah. I agree. For I sure. Agree. So that does bring up another point though, Kip, with, uh, the whole Sunday hunting efforts. So I, I believe NDA had some role in, the beginning of Sunday hunting here in Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're big advocates for Sunday hunting, um, just, just to provide more opportunity for hunters. You know, almost every other state has that ability. You know, Pennsylvania is one of the few states that it's really restricted. So, you know, we, we did support that. And, uh, you know, we're glad to see it start to pass in PA. And uh, I used to always joke about this. You know, I wrote a lot of letters of support for that in Pennsylvania. And I used to say, you know, every time I sent one of those in, my wife would write one in opposition to hunting on Sunday in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Send it in because, you know, she didn't want us to, to, to be hunting that day. Um, you know, I get it. Perfect example. You know, my brother lives in, in York, PA. So other end of the, the state, yeah. I have three nephews, two of them that are 15 and one that's 17. They're all involved in sports. They love to hunt. They love to come to camp and hunt, you know, and, uh, once hunting season starts, you know, two of the three are, are big wrestlers. And uh, so they're in winter sports. So they have almost no time at all to hunt, you know, during our deer season because, you know, they're in school and they're, and they're wrestling. Where, uh, man, if, if they could have those Sundays, you know, in some cases, you know, that, that would almost double the amount of time that they have, at least during rifle season to hunt. So uh, I'm very lucky, you know, I can hunt out my back door. You know, if I choose to not hunt on Sunday because I want to spend it, you know, with, with my wife or family or whatever then hey that's great but uh you know i i think it's good if, if people at least have that day or that opportunity if they choose not to man that's great but uh i i just know too many people that you know have so limited time or such little time during you know monday to saturday that man it sure would be nice you know if they could hunt on sundays yeah yeah i feel like we i mean everybody here i feel like we kind of share that same opinion mm-hmm. on that and just getting that extra little bit of opportunity, like you said, it might actually double their time that they get to spend in the woods. Because most people, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday, they're weekend warriors. And having that extra day would just, it could actually change somebody's season in general. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but, you know, Kip, you touched on it as well on your efforts of bringing the youth into hunting mm-hmm. and, you know, advocacy and everything else that you talked about at the beginning of this podcast how much easier would those efforts be if you had a Saturday and a Sunday? I mean, you double not only your time in the woods, but you double your chances for, you know, I don't want to call it success in the woods, but, you know, a positive outcome for young kids that are already pretty hard to gain kind of their their mental uh, focus whenever they're out there a lot of times. But if you can do it two days in a row, it seems like you can almost help kind of push them over the edge to get them a little more involved in the outdoors. Yeah, that's right. And 
So you give them more opportunity, and that's often the way we look at it, but we also have to recognize that then that gives you almost the double opportunity from the mentors. In. So, you know, yeah, the kid can go, or maybe it's an adult that's going to hunt, but a lot of times, you know, you don't have somebody to take them. So, you know, in a lot of cases, those mentors also have to work on Saturday where if they have Sunday off, like, hey, you know what? I do have a chance now. I'll be glad to take somebody hunting today or take them to the woods. So uh, so that Sunday can help from both ends of it. And uh, so that's why I think it's, it's so important. That's I never it. thought about that aspect of it, but it's really interesting and it's a great point. That's a great perspective. Yeah, yeah I never thought about it that way either. Okay, so we're talking about it a lot, but overall, Kip, how is the overall health of our big game species in Pennsylvania right now? Very good. You know, Pennsylvania hunters are very lucky uh, from the from a particularly from a deer end. Pennsylvania is one of the only one of the very few states in the country that that harvest over three hundred thousand whitetails annually. So we kill a pile of deer. Very few states kill more bucks per square mile than we do. Very few states kill more antlerless deer per square mile than we do. And we maintain this year after year. So, uh, you know, we're, we're really in the sweet spot of the country relative to, to from a deer management perspective. We have productive areas. You know, the whole mid-Atlantic region is just a really good place for deer to grow. So uh, we have healthy deer. We have a lot of deer, like way more deer, you know, than most other states have. We have good opportunities, you know, to hunt with a bow, crossbow, muzzleloader, rifle. We have good age structure with our deer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's we don't grow the biggest bucks in the country, but we grow some really big deer for sure. And lots of deer, lots of opportunities to go afield, lots of public land. So, yeah, we're, we're very lucky in Pennsylvania. There's, there's a lot of positives about our deer program. I must say it is a great day to be alive <laughs> and a great day to be, uh, you know, a hunter, especially I'm sure you can attest to it. When you were younger, I'm sure you're seeing a completely different deer herd now compared to when you were just growing up through it and hunting as a 12 year old with a gun. Yeah. My, my first year hunting, when I was 12 in 1982. And, you know, in those days, you know, you, you typically would see one buck a year. It was it would be one and a half years old. You have a good chance it'd be little spikes, maybe little forks. And uh, if you didn't get it, you basically had no chance to kill the buck the rest of the year because we killed almost all the bucks in you know, opening day of rifle season. So uh, we would see bucks during archery season, and I've archery hunted since I was twelve or thirteen. But at that time, you could only kill one deer a year. So if you killed, say, a doe in archery season. You couldn't even hunt in rifle season. Wow. So there that. was zero percent chance me or any of my buddies were gonna shoot a doe with a bow because you know there's no way we were gonna give up opening day of rifle. So yeah, and I, I can't tell you how many times at our camp, you know, the big buck contest was won by, you know, like a, a five point, you know, or a really tall four point. <laughs> or if you shot an eight point, even if it only scored, you know, twenty inches, you were guaranteed to win. Well, you know. <laughs> Fast forward to today, and I mean, it's just crazy, you know, how many older deer there are, you know, and, and high scoring deer. So, very, very different time for sure. And, and I mean, way better. That was a lot of fun. I'll be the first to admit, I, you know, I had tons of fun then. But, uh, you know, the way it is today, the deer herd is so much healthier and the uh, hunting opportunities, you know, are so much better. So, it's, it, uh, yeah, we're in the golden age today for sure. Heck yeah. I did not know that it was a one deer. Like in general for your whole season, I 
you know, my family's always had, I've never heard <laughs> that side of things, but that's really crazy. And it's, it's funny that you say, you mentioned like the big buck contest. It wasn't uncommon for someone to, to win on like a little four point or something like that. The camp that I always went to, it was usually like 15 or almost 20 guys a lot of the time. And it wasn't uncommon for a guy to win with a spike and it would come down to like <laughs> whose spike was longer. <laughs> like it was crazy. <laughs> Back then, they had to do the roll if you can hang a ring on it. Hang a ring on it, exactly. <laughs> there weren't that many points. <laughs> Man, that's wild. Is a shame. Now, I know you mentioned that you didn't use the shoot dough back then, or an antlerless deer, I should say, back then because you only won tag, but you are a pretty big advocate of shooting antlerless dough and harvesting antlerless dough. I think that is like something that is so lost in certain generations or certain people of certain areas that, you know, that whole thought, that old school thought that you don't shoot a doe because you eliminate three deer next year is still engraved in a lot of people's minds. And I, and I love the way you talk about this and the perspective you have. So if you don't mind talking about that just for a, a little bit, that I think that'd be a big help to some people maybe listening to this. Sure. And, you know, that, that's where deer management programs you make or break, you know, by, by harvesting the appropriate number of antlerless deer or not. And, uh, you know, in example, you know, of our camp, um, we, we always shot doe once we got into rifle season. Um, we wouldn't shoot them in bow season because, you know, you didn't want to give up the chance to shoot a buck. Right. But those times, you know, you, once you got to rifle, it was buck only for the two weeks and then it went to doe only. So, uh, you know, if you didn't get a buck, then you know, we absolutely were after doe. But uh, so I personally never grew up with uh, don't shoot a doe because that's bad. But however, everybody that's just a little bit older than me, you know, went through that mentality. And it really came about because, you know, they started hunting during the restocking phase, or you know, of deer where, you know, you didn't want to shoot a doe because you, there was deer herds were so low that you needed all of those does, you know, for breeding stock. So as biologists, the state wildlife agencies did a great job stocking deer and regrowing deer and encouraging hunters to not shoot does. Well, what happened then is once deer herds got up to where, you know, they were in balance with the habitat and they were fully restocked, then, you know, you had literally a couple of generations of hunters that were taught, do not shoot a doe. So it's kind of like trying then to turn the Titanic where, okay, deer herds are recovered. Let's shoot does. Of course, then the hunters are like, are you insane? You've been telling us, you know, for 50 years not to do this. So uh, it took a long time to convince hunters, no, 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 like we need to shoot some does, you know, particularly in, in places like Pennsylvania, you know, that are that are such productive habitat. You know, we need to be shooting more antlerless deer than bucks each year to keep our deer herds healthy. You know, otherwise they, they just grow too high. And of course, then they negatively impact themselves and the habitat. So at the first at QDMA and now at NDA, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to people just about the importance of harvesting antlerless deer. You know, not shooting them all by any means, but shooting the right number each year so that you keep deer herds in balance with what the habitat can actually support. You know, not below that, not above that. That way everybody has, you know, plenty to eat, deer are healthy, habitat is healthy, and, uh, you know, and then that just works very well, so. That's a, it's a big cornerstone, you know, of the whole QDM movement and still a big piece of what we do at NDA is, you know, to, to talk to people about the need to shoot antlerless deer and the benefits of that deer herd if they take some antlerless deer each year. 
I find that really interesting that you brought up that question. And it, it it's absolutely wild to me. I love shooting does. I don't know many people that don't shoot does, but I do know a handful that are absolutely blatantly against shooting does. It doesn't matter. They own farms. You know, they still shoot bucks every year. It is a doe factory over there, but they are just 100% against it. No, you don't shoot does. Buck only. Yeah. That's just a wild concept to me. I just... Well, see, and I'm learning so much in this podcast me from too. Kip because I didn't even know all of that, the backstory to why, um, you know, they were ingrained in that way. Yeah. And, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, people are really hard and they're really stuck in their way. I mean, take, for example, changing the first day of rifle to a Saturday. Oh, my. And I think everybody listening can understand from Pennsylvania how ingrained people are in, in <laughs> you know, in their way and in their path and uh, with tradition especially. So, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense because I remember when I was young, we would run into those old time guys and they'd be out there, you know, slinging their old 30 thirties and they would just, <laughs> some of them would get kind of nasty with you over, you know, harvesting a, an antlerless deer. <laughs> but I, I never knew that part of it. So um, I really appreciate you, you covering that. For yeah, me. definitely. Definitely. That's awesome. <laughs> but I still do know people that have property today that aren't that old and they're same way Austin's saying they got 50 doe in their field and you never see a buck. You don't shoot does there. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Well, we've talked about all the positive. Yeah. We've covered all the healthy and what's good and what's going on great in Pennsylvania. But I think we're running up on time and we got to switch. We got to flip the switch to what's kind of lurking in the background and that is cwd uh it's something that we've never really addressed in a in a very serious manner on our podcast so kip if you don't mind just from a very basic standpoint what is cwd why is it important to gain more knowledge regarding cwd yeah cwd is chronic waste and disease and uh it is bar none the single biggest threat that's impacted the future of deer herds and deer hunting. That, that's not just my opinion. That's not just the Pennsylvania Game Commission's opinion. It's the opinion of the vast majority of wildlife experts you know, that work with deer. It's, it's a disease that deer get. And, and what hunters need to know about it is it's there's no vaccine, there's no cure, and it's 100% fatal to all deer. So anybody that gets it is going to die. So obviously, if you're a deer enthusiast, <laughs> that's not a good deal. Fortunately, uh, it has a long incubation period, which means that once a deer gets it, it's, it's usually 18 to 24 months before that deer starts showing any symptoms. Once they start showing symptoms, they waste away very quickly and die. But what that means is many hunters will never, ever see uh, a deer that looks like it's sick because the entire time they have the disease, what it does, it actually eats holes in the deer's brain. So it just makes those deer much more likely to die to predation or vehicle or a hunter. So, you know, we know for a fact, science shows us a deer that has the disease, even if it's not showing any signs, it is two to three times more likely to die than a deer that doesn't have it. So they, they just don't survive well. So what that means is these deer are dying at much higher rates. But to me and you, the deer looks fine. So a lot of people who really aren't that under engaged with this or are knowledgeable about it, they think it's not a big deal. We're not seeing dead deer everywhere. Like, you know, what's all the fuss about this? But uh, it's, it's a huge deal and it's negatively impacting deer herds, you know, everywhere that it is. 
but it does so very slowly. It's not like a disease that they get it, they die, and you find that deer root. It works really slowly until it gets you know, infiltrates basically through the deer herd, and then it just gets to where it, it uh, the prevalence rate is high enough that suddenly, you know, that deer herd can't even sustain the regular deer harvest that we have during hunts. So that's why deer biologists and deer researchers look at it as, hey, this is a big deal. Now let's limit the spread of this disease until science gives us a way to, to beat it. And the good thing is, is that we learn more about it. We know how to limit the spread. And there's stuff that hunters can do every single day to limit it. If, if we just stop moving live deer and we stop moving the high-risk parts of the deer that we shoot, we can limit spread. And, and the high-risk parts is where the, the infectious materials accumulate in deer. It's things like the eyes, the brain, the spleen, the backbone. So this is why the Game Commission here in PA and many other state wildlife agencies don't let you move those high-risk parts out of the disease zones. So say you guys go somewhere that have, you know, deer has a disease. Say you travel to Bedford County. It's in Bedford County. You kill a deer that has it. You take that carcass back home to where you are, cut the meat off it, throw the carcass out, you know, out in the backwoods. Other deer that then come in contact with that carcass can contract the disease. So that's one of the terrible things about this and just how deer can spread it to one another. So that's why we have the rules to not be able to move those high risk parts. So as hunters, we can do that. We can abide by them, continue to limit the spread. And at some point here, science will catch up with it and just give us a way that we can beat it. So, and that, that's what we're all hoping for. Excellent. So what are some of those efforts currently going on um, regarding combating the CWD spread? I, I understand and I did a lot of research on it today. And, you know, what's crazy about just two hours worth of research into CWD has changed my perspective on it in, in all honesty. But I understand that Pennsylvania has a plan in place, um, one that has your name on it, actually. Can you touch on what's going on? What are some of the efforts that Pennsylvania is doing to kind of try to keep that from spreading any more than it already has? Yeah, Pennsylvania limits taking the high-risk parts of those harvested deer out of the disease zones. That's very helpful. Penn State, or I'm sorry, Pennsylvania has closed our borders to people who travel outside the state to bring deer back into the state. So they don't want to, you know, they don't want you to go into Maryland or Virginia or West Virginia or somewhere else that has the disease and bring those carcasses home. So that helps us. Pennsylvania has a great a CWD dashboard where hunters in any part of the state can look at where they either live or hunt to see the prevalence rate of the disease, see how many deer have been sampled for the disease. So it's a good way to engage hunters in this and just teach them more about here's where it is, here's what we can do to stop it. And uh, so, yeah, Pennsylvania is the Game Commission is really a leader in this fight, and that, and that is very good. Nobody has beat it yet. But, uh, you know, as we continue to learn more, we can arm hunters with the information to help us beat it. And, uh, and I'm very confident that we will beat it someday. And uh, so I'm glad at what Pennsylvania is doing to help limit the spread right now. So are some of those things inconveniencing the hunters you know, where you have to provide samples or you have to drop the head off? Heck, yeah, that's definitely an inconvenience to us. But I look at it this way. And I've hunted in disease zones. I've killed deer in there. My son has killed deer in there. It is absolutely worth the inconvenience to have to take the head to be sampled, you know, or to not be able to haul the, the carcass out of those disease zones. That is absolutely worth it to ensure that we have healthy deer populations in the future to hunt. So uh, 
I think it's just going to be a thing that the more and more hunters are going to have to, you know, become familiar with. You know, you can't just travel anywhere you want with your deer anymore. You, know, you have to take these other steps to make sure that uh, we have healthy deer in the future. So inconvenience, it sure is. But you know what? Good deer hunting is absolutely worth that. So well, I'm glad to do it and uh, encourage others to do the same. So if you're disposing of a deer in that area, what would you suggest? Would it be best case scenario to take that carcass, whether, you know, you go and get it tested or not, and, and you should, but is it best to take that carcass, you know, put in a big 50 gallon bag and then dump it off with into a dumpster somewhere? Or what's the best case scenario to try to help, even if that deer is or is not contagious to try to, you know, keep from other deer coming in contact? Well, since other deer that come in contact with that carcass can contract the disease, the best thing is to make it so other deer can't, you know, contact it. So uh, the best thing is to uh, to take it to a, you know, a landfill, you know, a, a landfill that where it's being covered. So, you know, there, there are many places, you know, with dumpsters that uh, that you can put them in that go there. So that is great. If not, you can bury it on the land, you know, that you shot it. Not everybody's going to do that, but that is a good way. Uh, it's the very least, leave it on the property where it came, you know, don't let it travel somewhere else, you know. So um, those are all things we can do. Ultimately, the best is to get it to a landfill, but uh, that's not available to everybody. And I understand that. So, you know, we don't have to do that. If you can't do that, just leave it where it is so that it's not being moved to another area. Okay. And then say like us guys, we don't live in a CWD area. We don't hunt in a CWD area, but... Would it be helpful to the cause if we were to take the deer that we harvest, especially bucks, to get them tested? It is. It's nice to provide testing because that allows our game commission to have a better idea of prevalence rate of the disease in any given area. So, you know, that sampling is so important, you know, so that they know where the disease is and how prevalent it is, because based on that, they will attack it differently. So, for example, if it's if it's in an area where prevalence is very, very low, you know, 1% of the deer have it, what they will want to do there is very different than if it's in an area where the prevalence rate is, you know, 15 or 20% of the deer. So, the number of deer that they'll, they'll want to sample is different. How they attack that is differently. So, yeah, providing those samples so that the Game Commission can have that data and learn is, is extremely helpful in the battle against CWD. But how does somebody go about learning where they can take their deer to get tested? Is it something they can do on their own? Are there check-ins? Are there, you know, give me the whole gambit on that. Yep. Every state wildlife agency has uh, information on where those places are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes that's very easy to find. Sometimes it's not. It can be difficult. So uh, actually what what we did last year, we have worked with Onyx for a number of years to provide all of the places where CWD has been found. So uh, we scour all the news, and every time New County confirms CWD, I contact the folks at Onyx Maps, and they list it on there. So anybody that has Onyx, it's a free layer. Uh, CWD layer shows, and you can go on there right now, shows every single county in the United States that has confirmed CWD. So that's very helpful for folks just to know where it is or not. But last year, we improved that, and we worked with that point, there was 26 state wildlife agencies that had CWD. That number is now 29. But all of those agencies provided information, and we put it into this Onyx app that shows where the disease is, exactly where the disease management zone is, 
if you are supposed to provide samples, yes or no. If you are supposed to provide samples, where the locations of the sampling efforts are. If the agency has dumpsters where you can dispose of the carcass, yes or no. And if so, here are the locations of those dumpsters. So all of this information that's helpful for hunters, and it's all geolinked back to the state wildlife agencies. So if they update it, if they change it, it's all updated in almost real time on the app. So that is, you know, you can go to any state wildlife agency and try to find it, or a much easier way is just get the Onyx app. You can look at the NDA CWD layer and it has all that information for you. So we, we made it super simple for folks to be able to find it. Oh, wow. <clears throat> that is very, very, very helpful. Charles actually pulled it up on Onyx and we're looking at it right now. Very, very interesting. That's wild. It's it is actually really wild. A lot closer than I would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. That doesn't make me feel very good. No. So, Kip, one of the biggest concerns, and and I understand it, is you know really our our elk herd as well. And I'm I'm glad to hear that at least from the reports through 2019 and and very limited testing in 2020 that. You know, we have not yet had any positive cases, knock on wood, in our elk herd, which is is phenomenal. But I can see, you know, with our elk and the way we've been diligently handling our our elk herd and growing it, that if something like this were to get with them, that it could be a much bigger issue. Yeah, I mean, just like whitetails, elk are susceptible. You know, they get it. And, uh, of course, you know, we have world-class elk hunting in Pennsylvania. I mean, it. It's one of the most difficult elk tags to get for good reason because we literally have some of the best, you know, elk populations and hunting there is. So thank goodness, you know, the CWD has not gotten into the elk herd and the game commission is working hard, you know, to keep it out. The one thing that, that, you know, so helping us a little bit here is elk don't seem to be quite as susceptible to it as whitetails or mule deer. That just any place that elk have it, 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 the prevalence rates of CWD tend to be less than elk than they are in whitetails. They certainly can get it, and any elk is susceptible to it, but they're just not quite as susceptible, so that is helpful. But, uh, man, hopefully our elk herd never does get it because, you know, I mean, it's a shame any time a whitetail herd gets it here, but, uh, yeah, we do want to do everything possible to keep it out of elk just because, you know, that, that, that would be very devastating. Not more devastating than a deer because it's terrible in deer, but uh, it's a nice success story right now that at least we've been able to keep it out of the elk herd and uh, so hopefully we can continue that far into the future something that just kind of popped in my head and it's just a quick question feel free to answer feel free not to answer it you know you mentioned that elk were maybe not quite as susceptible as whitetail and mule deer in the whitetail herd is it possible or are there any known cases where there might be an outlier of a whitetail that is not susceptible to it you know you think of i'm going to use covid as an example there's certain people that get COVID really bad. There's other people that don't get COVID at all, even if they're exposed to it. Is that a possibility within a deer herd that a deer might not be susceptible to it at all? They've done a bunch of research with that. And what they know now is every single deer is susceptible. Uh, there's a couple different genotypes within, within deer herds. One of those, they seem to be a little less susceptible and uh, they still get it. They just don't die as quickly. So they tend to live a few more months. Now, some people look at that as, man, that's great. Some people look at that as, you know what, that's really not that good because while they have the disease, remember I said it's like an 18 to 24 month incubation period. While they have that, 
they are shedding those infectious materials through urine, feces, blood, saliva that other deer come in contact with, then they get the disease. So in some cases, you know, if these deer live a few extra months, it allows them to shed more prions and infect other deer. So it's not a guarantee that this is a good thing. They live a little longer. The, the captive deer industry really jumps on what you just asked about is, ooh, is there, you know, is there a part of deer, you know, that, that just don't get it as much. And uh, so for captive deer, much of that industry is breeding heavily toward that genotype that tends to live a little longer. And they look at this as, hey, this is the answer. You know, we can we can save all the wild deer. Well, that's not true because the reality of it is that genotype does not survive very well at all in the wild. Hmm. Mother nature weeds it out very quickly. They're just so while they might live a little bit longer with CWD, you know, they don't do nearly as good of a job surviving on their own taking care of themselves, avoiding predators and all that. So that does work for the captive industry folks. Um, that's not an answer at all for, for, for deer or for wild deer or for us as hunters. Very interesting. So to, to a community of people that are very skeptic and they see, like you mentioned, something like EHD, for example, uh, EHD is something that hits the deer. They rapidly you lose rapid high numbers very quickly. And that's something you can see. That's something you can really see play out if you walk your property at a certain time. I know from when we used to go to Illinois, you know, back in 2012, 2013, we were out there. It was a considerable difference the way it just wipes out a certain area very quickly. How do you portray or get someone on board that sees EHD as a bigger concern than CWD? Great question. And, uh, and yeah, and, and hemorrhagic disease is so visible that it's easy for people to see that and understand the impact. And, and I think the best analogy is hemorrhagic disease is like a, a hornet's nest that's in your front yard, where if you go and hit that nest, you know immediately what's going on. Chronic wasting disease is more like termites eating the foundation under your house away. Wow. You don't see them. You don't know they're there. But by the time that they have disintegrated your foundation enough that you know something's wrong, it's too late to save the house. You know, the whole thing is going to collapse. So that's really the, the biggest difference between the two. Hemorrhagic disease, very visible, happens fast, very viewable, whereas chronic wasting isn't. It's kind of like a blob thing, you know, that just infiltrates real slowly and stealthily. And by the time that it impacts high enough numbers to start, you know, dec declining deer herds, it's to the point where, oh, no, what do we do now? You know, it's it's not like we lost a few deer here or we lost some there. It's holy smokes. This is a big segment of the population. That's the big difference. Great analogy. Yeah, that was excellent. Yeah. Very, very much so. So when you're looking at the studies, you're looking at some of the numbers, you know, it first came to Pennsylvania roughly 2012 in captive deer and then. 2013 in the wild. And then since then, we've basically had around roughly 460 or so cases. You know, we're probably approaching 500, I'd imagine, at this point. These studies, I think, are through 2019. Um, you know, and people are looking at this, you know, it's 1% of what's tested is actually coming back positive. Um, but it's still, there is still a highly rising amount of cases over the years. You know, when we first started, it was like two cases, three cases. Now we're up in um, I think there was 204 
The last year I looked at was 2000. I think that study was from 2019. There was 204 cases in Pennsylvania. 186 of those came from three counties alone. So I would say there's a pretty serious issue in those three counties for sure. And it seems to be starting to kind of grow. Are we at the point now where people look at this and they think that we're going out and just slaughtering deer numbers? Is is that, you know, a, a real effort to where we're trying to eliminate deer in these hotspots or these extreme areas? Where you have the disease at high rates, it's good to reduce deer numbers. Hunters often hear that as they're you know, eradicating the deer. They're all going to be gone. The reality is the Game Commission is not doing that. And even if they tried, they couldn't. You know, they wouldn't be able to do that because there's so much private land in Pennsylvania that, you know, the hunters and landlords just wouldn't give them access to do that. It's, there's a great example out of Illinois where when Wisconsin and Illinois both identified the disease back in early 2002, you know, right there across the line from each other. Illinois continued to do selective harvest in and around these areas, and they were sharpshooting. Wisconsin did it early on, and then because of political reasons, stopped. Well, fast forward to now. So much of those areas on the Wisconsin side, you know, have 20 to 50 percent of the deer in those areas have the disease. On the Illinois side, where they've continued to, to selectively remove some deer in and around those areas, there's still, you know, like around that 5 percent prevalence rate in many areas. So, so much better. But what that means is then is, you know, the deer hunters on the Illinois side have been far less, you know, impacted by it, whereas the ones on the Wisconsin side, you know, are greatly impacted. So hunters get all up in arms like, oh, my God, they're going to come in. They're going to kill more deer. But the reality of it is it is way better for us as hunters to remove a few more of those deer in those disease zones and keep that disease prevalence down than, you know, to let it grow wild. Because then that that just you know impacts all of us and that makes it way worse in the future. Hmm. It's super interesting. I, I know I've, I've read a lot on how Wisconsin is having some major issues with CWD right now. Um, they are kind of like the, the forefront or the ground zero, I guess you could call them of CWD. And they are extremely, they're, they're seeing some extreme numbers. Like you just mentioned, um, they're, they're in some trouble. I don't want to ever see that here. So, no. <laughs> you know, um, right. we, we mentioned the, the CWD act that was, trying to be passed. I know there's a lot of funds that would be going towards CWD research and whatnot. Do you know, are there any, you know, any new studies or any proposed new studies that are just sitting there, you know, like the dormant seeds, they're waiting for the ground to be tilled so they can sprout up and try to come up with some new research to really figure CWD out, and come up with an answer of ending this once and for all. Well, there's a, there's a lot of research going on relative to CWD, you know, and, and prion research. There's some really cool stuff out there, though, you know, that are looking at, you know, developing more rapid tests for it. Because today, you know, when you, when you get your deer, uh, if you're in the disease zone, submit the head, you're often waiting a couple of weeks before you get that test back. So there's been a lot of work at increasing, you know, the, the capacity to test those animals so that hunters can get it back quicker, you know, return the answer to you within a few days rather than a couple of weeks, which that would be a game breaker. That would be great. They're looking at trying to develop, you know, a better live animal test for deer because deer can be 
and they are moved, unfortunately, all too frequently between these captive facilities, moved with the disease. They don't realize the deer have it, but then they spread the disease to a new place. So, you know, if we had a better live animal test, there's stuff right now with humic acid. Humic acid seems to be a big success story with CWD and, um, you know, helping clean some of these areas with this to actually to make the disease less infected. So humic acids, you know, has a, has a great opportunity to help us in the future. So there's a lot of things like right on the horizon, like, ooh, you know, this would be good, this would be great. And uh, in the CWD Act would, one, help agencies better monitor the disease, be able to still provide some of those other funds for all of the other wildlife stuff, you know, that we want them to be able to do. So, yeah, and then provide some money for actual research. So that, that would be a huge win for, for hunters and agencies and deer alike. So, uh, and that was going to be uh, introduced this week, um, which is so we're closer than we've ever been before to getting that act passed. And, uh, yeah, man, that, that would be a great, great win for us if, if it can happen. Excellent. Well, that's all I had, man. That was that was <laughs> that was really everything I'd hope it to be. So, <laughs> thanks again, Kip. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on tonight. And Austin, do you have anything Absolutely, else? God. Yeah, no. I just I appreciate you coming on. This is so much more than I could have anticipated being. Um, Kip, this is your time to shine. If you want to tell people where they can find you, if you have something you kind of want to that you want to discuss that we didn't cover, this is your time. Throw it all out there. All right. No, I've had a great time here, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, uh, you know, and, and for your guys' efforts to educate hunters and landowners about these issues. So uh, I've enjoyed it. Certainly, if folks want to get a hold of me, they can contact me at kip at deerassociation.com. I encourage them to go to our website, which is deerassociation.com. We have all kinds of free resources, you know, to help them with information on, you know, habitat management or deer management or disease or whatever the case may be. So, uh, yeah, they can go and check that out. Contact me if I can help. And uh, um, appreciate what you guys do, guys. So, yeah, it's been good talking with you. You Excellent. as well. I appreciate it. Thank you so Thank much. You, Kip. All right. You guys take care. From antelope in the Western Plains to the whitetails of the Midwest and giant black bears in Canada, watch 100% bow hunting action on Respect the Game, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.